Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. The state's first African-American chief judge, Rowan Wilson, was inducted into his post this week. As the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports, the ceremony was the culmination of Governor Kathy Hochul's lengthy struggle to win confirmation of a new top jurist. I, Rowan D. Wilson, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear. Rowan Wilson took the oath of office as Governor Kathy Hochul, who nominated him to the post, stood by his side. Hochul says Wilson has a great track record as an associate judge on the court and will lend the high court new respect. She says that's important at a time when state courts are needed to counter a conservative U.S. Supreme Court. As the Supreme Court swerves down this path they're on, and God knows where it'll end up, taking away women's right to choose, taking away my ability as governor to protect people from concealed guns, you name it, they've been there. I needed someone that was, could be held in such high regard that when he spoke, rendered decisions, represented this court, represented the state, that he speak with authority and people would understand, no, this is New York. We do things differently here. Wilson says his goal is to oversee the best possible judicial system, and he pledged to have a collegial, not contentious, relationship with others in state government. To Governor Hochul and the executive branch and to the members of our state legislature, I can assure you that checks and balances means independence, not adversariness. And my team and I look forward to working with you collaboratively to improve the lives of all New Yorkers. Wilson was not Hochul's first choice for chief judge. She initially chose Hector LaSalle, who would have been the state's first Latino chief judge. But several top Senate Democrats objected, saying his track record was not liberal enough. The governor did not back down from her choice, and after weeks of gridlock, the Senate voted to reject LaSalle. Senate Deputy Majority Leader Mike Gianaris, who was among those opposed to LaSalle, attended Wilson's induction ceremony. He says the earlier disagreement is now water under the bridge. You see it in the universal uh, glee that's here today, people from um, all aspects of the court system and all branches of government are here to celebrate a historic uh, chief judge. And I think Rowan Wilson's going to make us all proud. Albany Law School professor Vin Bonventre, an expert on the New York State Court of Appeals, agrees. He says he hopes Wilson changes the direction of the court, which has been criticized by some as being too conservative and hearing too few cases. Rowan Wilson is an absolutely marvelous pick. And, you know, I'm not the kind of guy that would say that about everybody. Yeah, I think he's extraordinary. I'm hoping that the kinds of decisions uh, that were reflected in his opinions, dissenting opinions, now become majority. In addition to numerous other appeals, the Wilson court will also be hearing a key case on redistricting. It could decide the fate of which party controls Congress after the 2024 elections. Wilson's predecessor, former Chief Judge Janet DeFiori, who resigned in 2022, presided over a court that threw out the new congressional lines. They were drawn by Democrats in the legislature. That decision was a fact in the Republican Party flipping four seats in November of 2022.
Senator Gianaris, who helped draw those district lines, won't predict what might happen in court this time around. I have no idea. Um, that will be discovered later this year. The case will be heard in November. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustino. This week I spoke with Catherine Nado from New York Renews. It's a coalition of over 360 diverse organizations working to push lawmakers to pass climate-friendly laws and get New Yorkers off fossil fuels. I began by asking Catherine about New York Renews' success in passing New York's nation-leading Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. So the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act is New York State's hallmark law. And what it does is it sets targets for New York State to reach zero greenhouse gas emissions with renewable energy in every economic sector by 2050. It provides strong labor protections to create and support homegrown New York jobs. And it works to provide justice for communities that have been marginalized, left behind, and need that extra support to make the climate transition that New York State is currently taking on. Well, and the devil's in the details here. So how much progress uh, (laughs) has been made since uh, this law has been passed? Yeah, the law was passed in 2019. And in that amount of time, New York State has gone hard at implementing the law in a lot of different ways. Now, there is always more work to do, and we'll talk about that, right? There are places where we need to do more because the climate crisis is here, is impacting New Yorkers every single day, and we need swift and strong action in order to both slow the damaging effects of the climate crisis and also to invest in our communities to make sure that the people here in New York will survive and not only that, will thrive in the future ahead of us. So there's a lot more to be done. But in the time since the law was passed, since 2019, we've made great progress. Just this past year, the state has come out with a plan called the scoping plan, which is going to set, which sets the stage for how we need to move forward with this transition, both in reducing our greenhouse gases and in increasing the amount of money we're putting into communities throughout the state to make this transition, to do the nuts and bolts work of actually transitioning our economy, which means moving to remove fossil fuels, gas, and oil from buildings, to remove fossil fuel burning from transportation, and the all of the different opportunities and challenges that come along with that. So we have this plan that came out, and now the state is moving forward on drafting regulations to actually start making this plan a reality. And we're also moving forward with investments. We're moving forward with putting money into communities and into programs that are going to allow us. Okay, well, let's go a little deeper now. We had a summer of intense climate events. We had wildfires, smoke from Canada, wildfires in Maui. We've had flooding, one extreme storm after another. 
And it just doesn't seem we're doing enough. And despite your efforts at the close of the legislative session, you know that without bold leadership from elected officials, quoting New York Renews press yeah. release now, will only get worse. New York saw the highest pollution levels in the world that was with the wildfire smoke the same week that key climate jobs and justice legislation, including the New York Heat Act, the Climate Superfund Act, and the Just Energy Transition Act passed the Senate but stalled in the Assembly while the governor stayed silent. We can point out, of course, that there's huge Democratic majorities in the legislature, assembly, usually known as a fairly progressive house. How come we're not moving on that? Yeah, we have a lot more to do here. And when we talk about the climate crisis, we can't talk about that without talking about how we got here. And we've got, for far too long, we've got corporate polluters, fossil fuel companies, and for-profit utilities raking in billions of dollars by treating our earth, our air, our water as an inexhaustible resource that they can just use for their own personal profit. And they put us in this position. So we need leadership in New York State to start moving us forward to really address the crisis that's before us. That's what New York Renews is going to be working on in this coming legislative session with the Climate Jobs and Justice Package. Last session, we had key pieces of legislation that had tremendous support in the legislature. They should have passed last year, and we're committed to advancing them in 2024 and making sure that they're signed by the governor. And these bills, like you said, they include the New York Home Energy Affordable Transition Act, which is called New York Heat, the Climate Change Superfund Act, and the Just Energy Transition Act. And these three bills are bills that are going to move New York State in the direction we need to go in. We need to, first of all, make polluters pay. Again, these companies are making money hand over fist at our community's expense. For example, in the first Three months of 2023, ExxonMobil's profits rose to $11.34 billion. Chevron brought in a record $6.5 billion in profits, and that's at our expense. They're dumping their pollution into New York State communities while continuing to just rake in the money. So the Climate Change Superfund Act will hold these polluters accountable and hold them responsible for the solution for the damage that they've caused. So that's one bill that we need to enact this year, and that's got a lot of support throughout the legislature. Another one, New York Heat Act. This is a New York, again, New York Home Energy Affordable Transition Act. That's going to decouple New York's regulatory ties to fossil fuels, to fracked gas. So it will unrig the system. It'll free our state to build cutting-edge electric and thermal energy networks and to make sure that all of these upgrades benefit working people first. So those are two of the big bills that we're working on to address the climate crisis this year. In addition, we're also working to create a plan to move New York's most polluting fossil fuel power plants into renewable energy hubs. And we're doing that through the Just Energy Transition Act. So those are three bills that New York Renews is supporting this year that has tremendous amount of support in the legislature and that we're working to get across the finish line. And then the last thing I'll mention on the session to come is that we've got a big budget conversation coming up in New York State. And folks realize, I think at this point, you know, we can talk about our values all we want. But when you want to see what somebody really values, you look at where they spend their money. And New York State is not investing enough in climate solutions. 
everyone agrees that we need exponentially more investment. The governor's office agrees, the state agencies agree, NYSERDA agrees, and advocates agree. We need at least 10 to $25 billion a year investment. The New York State is working right now to draft regulations that are going to create a system that will cap greenhouse gas emissions and drive investments into funding for climate solutions. But we cannot wait for those regulations. We need to start investing right away. We need to do that in this budget cycle. And we've got projects that are ready across the state to get off the ground that will help make air cleaner, people's homes more comfortable, warmer in the winter, cooler in the summer, and help to reduce greenhouse gases all at the same time. We need those investments. So for a New York Renews perspective, those are four big pieces we're looking at. That's Catherine Nando from New York Renews. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Reformulated COVID-19 booster shots are arriving as winter nears and coronavirus cases tick up. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas has more. The FDA has green-lighted Pfizer and Moderna booster formulas. Both companies believe their reformulations offer some degree of protection against new coronavirus variants. Pharmacist Neil Smoller of Village Apothecary in Woodstock says the booster is one of the best protections that we have against severe disease and death from COVID-19. It's essential that everyone, especially those in the high-risk categories, get up to date with their vaccines as soon as they're eligible. From an availability standpoint, we're shifting from the government-provided uh, vaccines to private-provided, direct from the manufacturers through wholesalers and such. So we're going to have a transition period while we get used to these uh, newer um, arrangements, meaning um, is my insurance going to cover it? Is it going to be available universally as it was before? And a lot of that remains to be seen. Uh, We are really unsure of coverage levels. We know that Medicare has required insurances to cover it, but we don't know to what level and such. Um, Private insurances will have their own set of rules, and then there's the question of those that are uninsured. And the uninsured folks will have some programs available to them through county governments, state governments, and even the CDC. Dr. Eric Yeager of the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences says the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been discontinued, but that shouldn't stop people who received it from getting a new booster. The two options are the mRNA through Pfizer and Moderna and then the protein type through Novavax, which um, has not received FDA approval but has emergency use authorization. If you remember way back with all the different (laughs) terminologies that kept shifting with um, the use of the vaccines. In in general, I think it's important to have the reformulated, the the new boosters, because they are matching the the newer strain of virus that um, is the XBB strains, that um, having that clear match, somewhat similar to flu, is that if you have a better match, then individuals are better protected against um, severe outcomes of infection. Uh, and, and it's been seen.
seen with the boosters before the reformulation that those individuals that are particularly at risk for severe infection, so individuals that are um, above the age of 65 that have pre-existing health conditions, um, that the, it's important that they stay up to date with their vaccinations because it does, it does do a very good job at preventing severe outcomes and hospitalizations. Jaeger adds the triple threat of COVID, flu, and respiratory syncytial virus will be back for another season. Fortunately, there's a, a new RSV vaccine out to protect older individuals from RSV that can be problematic, individuals that are older and have pre-existing health conditions. So I, I think it gets kind of, you know, kind of scary at this time. You know, we think about, um, oh, I need another booster. Cases of COVID are rising, but we have effective vaccines for COVID and RSV and flu. So I just encourage people to stay up to date with vaccines, to stay in touch with their healthcare providers, to make sure that they are up to date. And then with COVID too, is just even though, there's, there's um, kind of fatigue with thinking about COVID being three plus years in, um, but it still is causing hospitalizations and deaths. So it's just maintaining some level of precaution. Just if, you, if you don't feel well, is to avoid contact with people that could be at risk for severe outcomes. Moderna and Pfizer say they don't expect emerging variants to cause a spike in the number of COVID cases. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. The New York Public Service Commission held the first of several scheduled public hearings this week on a rate hike requested by Central Hudson Gas and Electric. The Legislative Gazette's Jesse King was there and filed this report. When I call out your name, I will ask that you hit star three on your phone so that we can recognize you and unmute your line. That's moderator and administrative law judge Ashley Marino with the Department of Public Service. Central Hudson recently submitted a one-year rate plan requesting a 16 and 19 percent hike for electric and gas delivery, respectively, beginning in July 2024. If approved, the utility says that would mean an extra dollar per day for the average electric rate payer and an extra dollar per day for the average gas rate payer. Ron Giordano was one of many customers who called in with questions and comments on Tuesday. I just have some concerns. I noticed that Seth Hudson saying they need this one-year only raise. Does that mean that after one year, the rate's going to go back down? Because if that does happen, it'll be historic, as far as I can tell, since the rates never go down. Hi there, Mr. Giordano. Yes, this uh, uh, the hearing is primarily to hear comments from you, but once a rate is set, that would be the rate until it was changed. I just feel that the rate increase is not really something we should be giving Central Hudson based on their performance. If anything, we should freeze their rates. I don't think we should be rewarding Central Hudson. In its plan, the utility cites customer arrears and infrastructure improvements for the rate increase. Central Hudson says roughly 75 percent of the infrastructure investments proposed in its outlook would go toward replacing old equipment, as 20 percent of its electric infrastructure is currently operating beyond its, quote, expected useful life. Additionally, the utility says it needs to make changes to comply with New York's Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. And it also wants to allocate more resources for storm preparation and an expected shift from bi-month to monthly meter readings. However, the proposal comes after years of complaints stemming from Central Hudson's billing practices. Last year, the commission found the utility's new billing system could not handle complex situations, forcing thousands of customers to grapple with overbilling and other errors. CEO Christopher Capone detailed the company's efforts to resolve the breakdown in an interview with WAMC earlier this year. 
we are going to be hiring upwards of 100 people, including 36 people specifically in our contact center. We've spent over $30 million of non-ratepayer funds to address these issues, and we'll continue to invest funds as needed to resolve these issues, and we'll continue to do all the work that's necessary to bring, again, the service quality back to what customers expect of us and what we expect of ourselves and to resolve the remaining issues. The utility has since agreed to pay for an independent monitor to review whether efforts to fix the billing system have been effective. The proposed rate increase has drawn renewed criticism from local lawmakers and officials, from Assemblymembers Dee Dee Barrett and Sarah Hannah Shrestha to Ulster County Executive Jen Metzger, all Democrats. Last month, Democratic State Senator James Scoopis of the 42nd District asked the commission to reject the rate hike, saying he is still receiving complaints about billing errors from constituents. Democratic Congressman Pat Ryan of the 18th District shared that sentiment in an interview with WAMC. They have no business raising rates any amount, and definitely not 16 or 19 percent, um, which is what they've proposed. So we've pushed back hard on that and said that that just can't even be on the table until we sort out what's already very much still uh, being investigated and fixed. Our next speaker will be Allison Turinchalk. I just want to say I went through a major fiasco with Central Hudson this year and I still feel that I was right because they didn't properly bill me. The commission has said that utilities often request a much higher rate hike than they actually get. But Ryan urges ratepayers to make themselves hurt. Starting Tuesday, Assemblymember Shrestha will hold a series of seven town halls across the Mid-Hudson Valley to inform residents about the utility system. Also on Tuesday at the Newburgh Free Library, Democratic State Assemblyman Jonathan Jacobson is hosting a billing assistance meeting where customers can work one-on-one with a central Hudson representative to resolve their billing issues. That runs from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m. The commission has two more virtual and telephone hearings scheduled for 1 p.m. and 5 p.m. on Wednesday. And after calls from local officials, the commission says it will also hold in-person public hearings at a later date, but no details have been announced yet. For a full rundown of dates, phone numbers, and access codes for the virtual hearings, go to WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jesse King. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. SUNY Plattsburgh held its annual 9-11 commemoration this week to honor those who perished in the 2001 attacks, including two graduates of the college. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley with more. On the edge of Hawkins Pond, there is a plaque inscribed with two names, Robert Sutcliffe from the class of 1984 and William Irwin, class of 1992. Both died during the terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers on September 11, 2001. Every year, members of the campus community gather by the plaque to remember the events of that grim day. Plattsburgh Town Supervisor Michael Cashman was a student at SUNY Plattsburgh at the time. The day's events come searing back, and I remember coming out of class and seeing on the large TVs in our college center the events unfolding. Uh, to later on that day being part of the residence assistant team, going door to door, knocking on doors, talking with residents, educating them 
with what was unfolding, you know, from the information that we knew at that time. And a lot of our students, like they are today, are still from downstate. So they were trying to get a hold of friends and family members. Uh, you couldn't get through on the phone lines, and it was very heartbreaking. It still is. Omicron Delta Kappa president and senior Nicole Malatino was born after the attacks. We believe that there are timeless lessons that we all need to be reminded of in hopes that this type of event does not happen again. At the forefront of these lessons is to teach individuals, groups, communities, states, and countries to resolve conflict in nonviolent and peaceful ways. The Honor Society's Vice President, Senior Robert Han, said while fear consumed citizens 22 years ago, love and compassion allowed the nation to prevail. As someone who was only about nine months old during the attacks, I have no recollection of the immediate grief and overwhelming feelings of sorrow that swept across our nation and the world as a whole. However, growing up in what many refer to as a post-9-11 world, I do and will always remember how the generations before me so reverently used those same feelings of love and compassion to not let loss impede our nation's ability to care for one another, and most importantly, to build back stronger than ever before. Hen said 9-11 reminds his generation to keep going regardless of any obstacles. Although a majority of my generation did not watch the towers fall, we did watch the Freedom Tower rise. And that is proof that we have the power to rebuild in the face of adversity. We chose unity over indifference, compassion over callousness, perseverance over stagnance, and most importantly, we chose and will always choose love over fear. Campus Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Allison Hurd, used health and medicine as an analogy for healing from the terrorist attacks and hatred. When you think about today, while it is important to focus on 9-11, I can't have you stop there. I just need you to do a little extra to make us free from the disease of hate, because I promise you it's a disease. Because to remember is to make a commitment never to forget. About 50 people attended the commemoration. Some audio is courtesy WCAX News. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. Look for program number 2337. And join us again next week at the same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org.